0: teach this for a long time Um, and and it's because it's going to be the kind of thing that we haven't been able to do you're not going to be able to do this in gospel doctrine you can't do this almost anywhere else Um, but I I think if, if can you imagine if we tried for instance uh, to just drop into the Doctrine and Covenants and read a verse without knowing anything at all about the history, what caused the revelation, what was the question, what was the circumstance. You might get some information about from a verse, but what happens when you get the entire history the way that we've been working the last year on it? Doesn't it sort of live? Kind of take off? It'd be a little bit like somebody dropping into our country today and going that may from another planet, and they go, wow, it's kind of a... your politics is really polarized. <laughs> and they would have walked away going, wow, well, it's always, I guess it's always been this way, this is the way earthlings handle everything. Rather than saying, no, this is a little bit more recent, and here's the circumstances behind it. Context makes all the difference in being able to understand. So, the the... A hard thing about understanding the New Testament and why I think people struggle sometimes with the New Testament is that we are dropping in in the middle of the story and we don't know we think it's always been this way we don't know the history behind it we don't know the customs um, it is true that uh, the past is a foreign language it is a foreign land And until we understand all of this, it's going to make everything jump and pop to us. So uh, we have... An incredible, unique—I think—opportunity in the next few months here to say we're going to do something we just don't don't normally get a chance to do, and that is we're going to take the time and the energy to dig. We're going to dig, and we're going to look at stuff. And now you're going to hopefully now the New Testament will really jump. We can say, well, that isn't exactly what they were saying. Okay, uh, so I recommended that you get kind of a handful of books. Uh, I understand the last copy of the new te- of uh, Tom Wayman's uh, New Testament went off the shelf. Who got that? Well, that was a week or so ago. That was a week or so ago. <laughs> okay, but it can be had on Amazon. Uh, also uh, uh, Jesus Through New Testament Eyes is one of the books that we'll be looking at. And I'll continue to kind of remind you on, on some of those, the, the books that I think um, we should be looking at. Uh, so my, my only concern with as we get started with this is that I want this to be, I want our understanding to be there. But also I think we have a, and I certainly feel an obligation to say there should be, uh, applicability here. There should be the ability to be inspired to go from here and be able to say, How does this affect my life? And how does it affect the way I read? And how will this make things better? Yeah? What was the name of the first book that flew off the shelves? What's that? What was the name of the book that flew off the shelves? It is called The. Um, tell you what, let's do this. Just a reminder. I know I did this last. Two weeks ago. Some people weren't here. New Testament letters and songs. Uh mm-hmm. hey Kevin? Yes. I just bought that New Testament one last night. Yes. Amazon. It says it's going to take one to two months. One to two months. It has been so popular. Um, I think I put it. I think I put the books in here, didn't I? Nope, it wasn't there. Uh the latter day There they are. Okay. This is the one, Thomas Wayman, BYU professor, his new commentary, we're going to, I've now taught a couple of classes out of that, and been able to compare that alongside the King James, we're not giving up on the King James, the King James is poetic, but it's 16th century English, and Jesus didn't speak in 16th century English, he just didn't, he spoke in a very common Greek, common language, uh, and so... That, that one helps. Uh, this is the other one I'm drawn heavily on. Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes that uh, Kenneth Bailey uh, has done a wonderful job on. Um, and then also, especially these two, Simply Jesus and Paul. When we start talking about uh, after Jesus, the church in the first century, meaning like like 30 A.D. through about uh, 130 A.D., we're going to be looking an awful lot at Paul's travels and the struggles he was having uh, in the branches and exactly what he thought he was doing and what he was involved in. So those become uh, just wonderful uh, resources. Um, We were just talking earlier, too, that... um, one of the things that I think we're doing better at as, as a church is we've tended to be kind of inside our little enclave And we said, we have the King James Version and we're not really looking at any other sources from any other writers. We're just going to have our own little Mormon writers. And traditionally at BYU, if you were going to be teaching in ancient scripture at BYU, short of Hugh Nibley, there was an awful lot of people who had been seminary teachers and then institute teachers and then went BYU to teach New Testament. Now the scholarship level at BYU has raised dramatically. And so the peach People that are writing books and teaching and doing podcasts and everything at BYU are uh, professors in Near Eastern uh, Studies from Duke University and theological degrees from uh, North Carolina State or from Oxford or something like that. Our level of scholarship is higher than it has ever been before. And a lot of times they're not bringing these professors into BYU. Some of our best voices are people located still... uh, at Collin College here in Texas, we got a, one of a guy here, or at Duke, or at all over the place, and they're bringing them into the Maxwell Institute to teach, but they're not bringing them onto the faculty at BYU. These guys are writing, so our level of scholarship and understanding the New Testament has never been better than it is at this moment, and it's offered up a wide range of understanding now. Put those first three up. <clears throat> the first three. Okay, and so th- the fact that we are. We're studying the New Testament this year. We have more sort resources and more accurate resources, uh, and the ability to reach out to a number of verse uh, commentaries to pull it all together and say exactly what Je- what did Jesus really mean by that word? Oh my gosh, it changes the meaning. So, all right, that give us a good start. Please. Uh, do they work with other like Protestants and uh, Catholic? Yeah. yeah in other words, we're, yes. th- these are wonderful and some these are very um, uh, uh, Kenneth Bailey, I think is Methodist, I think. And uh, NT Wright is a, uh, he's a Church of England Bishop in Durham. England so, so, so we're looking at all of those and we are part of that community and saying wonderful scholarship has been going on let's not cut ourselves out from that let's, let's draw as Joseph Smith used to say from we'll take truth wherever we can get it and, and if there's anything of uplifting of good report we seek after these things well these are great inspired writers and we, and we should be using them yeah are they determining the truth well, here's the here's that's a really good question. How are they determining the truth? What happens as you look at all of these commentaries, and and like for instance with. Uh, Tom Wayman is from BYU. And part of what he's doing is he will give you commentaries from Book of Mormon and and, uh, Joseph Smith's translation. And he'll put that underneath. When we're looking at things like um, Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes, we have to look at it through that vision. And then say, okay, I think they're a little bit off here. But the Spirit should tell us if we're listening, this is good scholarship, this is being seen through their Protestant eyes um, and, and certainly there are a lot of times that I see that with N.T. Wright and I go, he's still bound up by the Trinity and he can't separate that out and, and you get that, okay? We shouldn't throw out all the awesome scholarship on the other side of that simply because they're not Mormon okay? Alright well that said let me tell you a, today I want, I want to tell you a history story when we talk about the Jews in the temple set, second temple period and sometimes uh, we'll describe it that way that really is after they come back from exile from Babylon moving forward. Okay? Now, we just talked about why do so? So why do you think context matters? Why is it so important that we get the background behind it? It explains, it explains the mental condition of people, the political conditions of people, and sure, cultural yeah, and we get all of that. And how does that help? It things in context. What's that? It puts things in context. And if you put things in context, then what? I think they're more correct. Sure. We're going to find sometimes, uh, for instance, uh, the, the parable that the Savior talks about going out to get the 90 and ninety and 9. We have used it at one level, but that's exactly opposite from way, the way he intended it. When we get into the parables, you'll see understanding the context will tell you, Oh, wait a minute, that was different than we thought. And it's more powerful It's more powerful in dealing with the Pharisees. Okay. All right. Well, that said, let's start. Let's start in the Book of Mormon. Let's start with what we know. Lehi escapes uh, from uh, Jerusalem. About what year? About roughly 600 BC. Okay. Uh, Does Lehi escape before? Or after the Babylonians have conquered the city. Before. After. What? Oh. There is the Babylonians uh, will first of all capture the city of Jerusalem. They will haul off to uh, Babylon people that, who, who goes off to Babylon, who gets who gets captured and taken off. The best and the brightest. The best and the brightest, the nobility, the princes, the princesses. That includes names like who? Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. uh, Ezekiel. Those are those are all being taken off to Babylon yeah they are it's about 604 605 and 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 our book of mormon tells us that lehi leaves ahead of that didn't you tell us one time that you thought that nephi would have been one of those hauled off to babylonia if they hadn't left Jerusalem? yes i believe that Uh, because he would have been and maybe even laman and lemuel because lehi was a landholder and he had and he would have been among the brightest and they would have hauled him off okay so what happens Lehi left after here's what happens I know I know they come in they 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 uh, because who is the king at the time Zedekiah who put Zedekiah on the king uh, on the throne Nebuchadnezzar did when they roll in they take they kill the king he puts uh, Zedekiah on the throne and he says don't mess with any other people and Zedekiah says, okay. Then, then he finds out that he's reaching out to Egypt. And the, and the whole army, after they have conquered Jerusalem, that army goes off and attacks and has this big battle with Egypt. And that gives us a space of about ten years, eight years. In that period of time, Lehi takes his family and leaves. Because then they come back from that conquering and find all of the duplicity that Zedekiah had been doing with the Egyptians. I find out you've been cheating on us, okay? And then they level the city and destroy the temple and take everything out. That's when that happens. I think three times the Babylonians came. Yeah, they've kind of they got defeated once. the The Babylonians came in the second time. Conquered the city, and then when they come back the third time in 587, it's with a vengeance, and and we call it the Abomination of Desolation. They clean this out, but by then Jews are leaving; they're jumping the ship. They can see what's about to happen, and there are a bunch of them actually that end up in Egypt. That's where we're going to get Alexandria and all the things that are the Jews that are there. Okay, so they are then going to be hauled off to Babylon and Lehi leaves, uh, and at that point then the Jewish elite are taken to Babylon and the Jewish commoners are left to work the land. This is really important to understand. Who gets taken to Babylon? The elite. Who gets left behind? Mm-hmm. The people that know their farms and the laborers who can produce stuff to give to send to Babylon, kind of a slave type of thing that's really important about who stays and who goes okay Well and you'll understand that in a sec now a portion without getting too deep in this, remember that while they're in captivity while they're in captivity um, they find, they've got Isaiah's writings. And Isaiah talks about this wonderful Messiah that's going to come by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus is the head of the Persians. They're going to come in and conquer Babylon. And then they're going to say, then he reads Isaiah's writings. And he says he's going to be kind. He's going to be a good man. And Cyrus, after 70 years, says, Jews, if you want to go home, go home. Now, who would leave? Who would leave the comforts and the beauty of Babylon and the Hanging Gardens? Who would leave and who would stay? The majority stays. The majority actually stays. Why? Because it's kind of a cool place. It's an intellectually stimulating place. We're going to stay in Babylon. There's not much to go back to. Then there's not much to go back. So who would go back? Priests and the elite, the landholders, those people that feel like they have things to go back to, they're going to leave and go back. But, that all, but the, also the ultra-Orthodox religious go back. Because it's Jerusalem, dang it. it? <laughs> Abraham promised it to us and we have to rebuild the temple. So you're going to get the elites. Keep this in mind, you're going to have the elites going back and you're also going to have the, the really religious, the ri- re- rigidly religious are all going to go back to Jerusalem. The majority are going to stay in Babylon. By the time Jesus comes, there will be a million Jews in Israel, a million in Babylon, and another million in Egypt, Egypt around Alexandria. So only about a third are actually in Israel when Jesus comes. Okay. Now, one last thing that we need to remember about this moment. Um, not only does this feel like it's really similar to um, when they came out of Exodus and, and, the, and, and got back to the land. It feels that to those that are returning to Jerusalem. But also because there was great fear among the people when they got to Babylon, we've lost our land, we've lost our city, we've lost, we may have lost our culture, what are we going to do? We'll lose our identity as the chosen people. They finally, 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 while they are in Babylon, and this is important, they finally write down the books of the Pentateuch genesis exodus leviticus numbers that's when those books are written then it, they have a babylonian style to them the scribes are writing them and they are writing their history and they're going to make and and that's important because when we're looking at like first kings and, and you got saul and king david they're making these guys look Fabulous! And if they're going to conquer a city, they kill everybody in the city because they're great. They're, they're, there's some fiction rolling in here. The numbers are really weird. Because we're in, in exile and we're going to try and our, our heroes from the past did all these great things. And so all those books, a lot of the Old Testament is written in Babylon. And now they finally have access to that. Okay. Now one of the ways, why do we know that? Well, because when we're looking into antiquity and we're trying to see what parts of the the Old Testament are true, we have another thing called the Babylonian Talmud. It's It's the Jewish writings written in Babylon. And you can see the differences between the two. The Hebrew Bible, worshiping almost King David, making him a heroic, larger than life person. And the Babylonian Talmud that goes well not so much, there was that uh, that Uriah thing. And they're more likely to tell that story. Yeah. Okay, so you are saying that Genesis and all that was written um, In Babylon. In Babylon. Mm-hmm. And but what about when they when Lehi's family goes back and gets brass plate? Ah, yes, good point. So what did they have? At a different record. It is, and because and, when we're looking at the brass plates, we he, we keep hearing about prophets like who? When you're looking in the Book of Mormon and the Book of Mormon prophets are quoting from the brass plates, who are they quoting? Zenos. Zenos, and we go who? Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't in the Babylonian Talmud. It's not in the Hebrew Bible. It's not in the Septuagint. Where'd these guys come from? Well, they were were writings, but they had not, but when you're looking at Genesis, so those records were there, but they hadn't been formally written and organized into what we have now. Okay? How are we doing so far? History okay? All right. Wait, there's more. Yeah? Jeremiah. Did he go? Jeremiah... Jeremiah gets to be the prophet that witnesses all of that. So we're going to leave him in Jerusalem. In jail. in jail. Yeah, first of all, in a cistern. Ooh, we don't have a jail, but we got a big rock. We're going to put him in the, in the, where the water should go, we'll throw Jeremiah in the cistern. You know, and that's why he's going to talk about empty wells, you know, because he's got experience with that. Okay. All right. So. Then an amazing thing happens. So they go back. Actually, I need to do this in different order. Uh, no, just now we'll do it in this order. Then, about 3:30 BC, an amazing thing happens. The Persians get conquered by who? <laughs> oh man! Here come here come the Greeks, and and they conquer this entire area. Okay. Now. This is this is kind of an amazing deal. The Greeks are different creatures from any other empire to this point. Um Here's here's the problem. Hold on a minute. Whoops. Uh-uh. Don't mind me. <laughs> here we are. Okay, hold on here. Don't mind me. I'm just taking a second to animate it. Yes, okay. <coughs> here we go. Okay. there's a rule in teaching you never let people see too far ahead because <laughs> they will look ahead and not pay attention to what you're saying if you're doing PowerPoints don't throw everything up all at once because they'll read ahead and then they'll go what okay so the Greeks conquered Persia why is that such a big deal what is there that's different about the Greeks than anybody else Anyone know What's that? All their gods? All their philosophy. And oh, the, the philosophy. philosophy? Oh, yeah. It's a yes. It's the Hellenization that we call it. Okay? And that is that the Greeks, think about Athens, and, and, and uh, Aristotle, and Plato, and Socrates, and more than anybody else, um, when, when, you go to, when you go to Athens, um, and you look at all of those, the great civilization that was Athens. And one of the things that they, because they were educated and intellectual, they were the first ones to come up with the concept of governments that included republics. We're going to vote, we're going to have city-states because we were educated and erudite. Okay? And and um, so the, the allure of Greek, Hellenistic thought was amazing. Imagine a little bit like if we went out to, I don't know, Abilene. If we went out to Abilene and we found out, oh by the way, Harvard is putting a second call second campus in Abilene. Uh. Would that change Abilene? Uh. It change Harvard. Harvard. (laughs) Latin with a drawl yes (laughs) but but everybody in there would kind of like okay wait a minute we're kind of backwards and here comes these educated erudite philosophical things that are just the allure on that would be incredible and that's exactly what happens everywhere Greek the Greeks went, they didn't necessarily wipe out the culture that they were there, but they were so alluring, they were so seductive, that everybody, when they landed, and by the time they got done, everybody was speaking Greek, thinking Greek, uh, building their buildings Greek, <laughs> everything was Greek, and worshipping Greek, worshipping mythology and multiple gods, okay, uh, and it was almost an irresistible force when the Greeks show up, okay, so, so, um... Kevin, a really important aspect of the Greeks is that they allowed people to think, and they didn't beat you up if you disagree with the thinking of the aristocracy. Yeah, in other words, okay, you can continue to, you can continue to kind of think in your backward ways, but let's present something better, something cooler. And so they would, they say, okay, go ahead, and if you want to stay Jewish, stay Jewish. But let me have you read a little Plato alongside Moses. See what you think. What do you think? And it just was too alluring. Yeah, it was amazing. So it allowed for multiple gods? Well, we believe in Je- Jehovah. Okay, hang on to Jehovah. Let's also give you Zeus. Oh. I mean we can do that too. oh yes, that's what we do, we bring them all together, okay? Only this one is a little bit more, Moses was a little strict, this one's cooler. So it was, and not only that, we're really going to, we're going to take your language, the Aramaic, and we're going to introduce Greek, but if you want to get along with us at all, you're going to have to learn to speak Greek. So it doesn't take very long before everybody has to learn to speak Greek if you're going to get along with the people in kind of control. How many languages did Jesus speak? Aramaic? Aramaic? He could read Hebrew. We knew that. I don't know how often he spoke it, but he could certainly, he could read Torah, and that was going to be in Hebrew. What else? Probably Greek. Think he's speaking Aramaic to uh, Pilate? Mm-hmm. No, he's speaking Greek. Okay? At least three languages there Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. Okay? You don't think about him being multilingual, but he was. Kevin, how does this tie in with the Roman Empire? Hold on. The Romans are coming. Okay. (laughs) The Romans are coming. So, Greek uh, philosophy was attractive, it was sophisticated and it took everywhere they went Uh, you just ran into Greek culture all over the place Uh, for instance architecture if you go to uh, Athens and you look at the the uh, Parthenon and all that and you see all these magnificent uh, construction out of marble and what we call Corinthian uh, columns that Corinthians Roman but they were, they were going after Greek construction. So it's all about marble. And it's all about these magnificent things that still survive today. Eh? All right. Now, that, so that paganism, when they show up, the paganism starts attracting growing opposition from the more pious Jews. Remember, who, goes, who is going to come out of Babylon the elite and who else the more pious now that's a problem there's a real problem here and we're going to get into that in greater detail in just a second but if you're really pious and you came here and you settled this land because you believe in the abrahamic promises and the temple and here come the greeks and this cool zeus guy well that's a that's a big problem there, there's a similarity by the way if you if, if you're in Utah in kind of the late 1800s uh, but maybe around 1869 1870 1875 there was kind of a big split culturally between those of us that hopped the train and took the train to immigrate to Utah from England and who handcart. and the, I'm a handcart saint I was 1847 I was here and you threw everything on the train and just rode out here (laughs) you're a convert I have seven generations and so there's a sense of I'm more pious or I'm more better Uh, I understand that you grew up in North Carolina I have pioneer stock (laughs) therefore my answer is more important than yours in gospel doctrine (laughs) you know we can get caught up in that and there was a certain amount of that and it's really going to blow up when we get to the Romans here so the piousness especially those in the country really start pushing back against Greek thought because they're bringing all these extra gods and remember that the Deuteronomists really pushed hard on saying we believe in a single god the the Shema, the, the prayer, the, the prayer every day is um, uh, is emphasis on the one God. Oh here, oh here, oh Lord, uh, that God is one, the one God. That was the big deal, and the Greeks are showing up with multiple gods. So this would be a little bit like going to Panguitch and having Hollywood set up in the middle of Panguitch, Utah. <laughs> yes alright now because of that though the Greeks and their writing and organization they're going to take what was coming out of Babylon the, now we have the writings of of uh, Torah and we have the writings of the Pentateuch the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus and all that. First Kings, Second Kings and all that and we're now going to put it together we're going to create a written language for people to actually read because as Greeks we read and we have written language but what language is it going to be in Greek, Greek. Greek. so the Septuagint that was actually written uh, from which we drew uh, even the King James people were drawing on the Septuagint William Tinsdale was drawing on the Septuagint that's simply the Hebrew Bible written into Greek and it happens under the Greeks does that make sense Okay. So the Hebrew Bible that was written in um, Babylon. That so so really the, the Bible that doesn't get translated into Greek is actually coming out of the Babylonian Talmud because the the Babylonians aren't as influenced by the Greek oh. as much as it was here. They had a stronger culture. Okay. So I didn't get that answer. It, it, you're saying that they translated. The the one that was not Babylonian. Yeah, the Babylonian Talmud is in Babylonian. Okay. It's not in Greek. Er, okay? Okay, now. So, this works really well for about 150 years. And then then we have one Greek leader who's actually Syrian by birth who's going to change all of this forever. And he really changes the Near East in one fell swoop, and he's a wonderful little guy by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus, the the Jews are starting, those pious Jews are pushing back, and I don't like the way they're doing it, and they seem to have an attitude. So I think I'm going to wipe out Jewish culture. So what he does, he sets out to destroy Jewish culture. This is about 167 BC. He's going to try and destroy Jewish culture. Can you imagine somebody coming into Utah and saying, you must drink coffee every morning. You're not allowed to not drink wine. You must drink wine. You can't eat green jello. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and funeral potatoes are right out. <laughs> yeah. Is he working for the Greeks? He is, uh, he, is the, he is kind of the head over Palestine. He's actually part of, uh, it's called the Secludian Empire. So yeah, he's working for the Greeks, but he's kind of on his own. The other, the other Greek leaders aren't doing it like he's doing it. So this is kind of unique. Uh, So Antiochus, bless his pointed head, uh, is really working hard. He's not allowing him to do festivals. He's not allowing him to do sacrifices. Uh, He's not allowing him to eat kosher. Uh, He's not allowing him to go to synagogues. And the other thing, the other problem is that temple thing up up on the temple mount. What do we do with that? let's make that a temple of Zeus how about that that would be a little bit like saying "Ah, let's put a topless bar in the celestial room of the Salt Lake Temple (laughs) (coughs) would that get a reaction Antiochus did it he created a temple of Zeus uh, right on the Temple Mount right in the Holy of Holies and that was the final straw. At that point, they went, that's enough. Uh, after he's, been, he's done all of that, you can't circumcise, you can't do that. But that, that Temple of Zeus thing uh, on the Temple Mount, that's too much. That is our line we're going to draw in the sand. And at that point, uh, the, the rebellion begins. Uh, a family in the north by the name of Maccabees rise up and say that's enough and they raise an army and and amazing amazing it's almost like the like the American Revolution this ragtag army is going to defeat the most powerful army in the world and they're able to throw the Greeks out of Israel completely under the Maccabees now it's kind of cool here it's important to note that Simon that one of the Maccabees that they call Judah the hammer As soon as he, when he conquers Jerusalem, look at what he does. After defeating the Greeks, he enters Jerusalem with a chorus of praise and the waving of palm branches and promptly cleanses the temple. So picture that moment. Here's here's Judas the hammer and he's on a war horse with his army behind him and they march into Jerusalem and people are waving palm branches, here comes the new king. Yay! And what is the first thing you do? He's going to go up to the Temple Mount and he's going to cleanse the temple. Now, is that going to kind of be important later? From a context standpoint, what were people thinking when Jesus Jesus rides in? He has, Judas the hammer has returned. That's the thinking. But he's riding a donkey, which is weird. I mean, that's out of Old Testament scripture. He's riding a donkey, but then what does he do? Not only is he going to cleanse the temple, but we don't recognize (coughs) he occupies the temple. They will shut down sacrifices for about two or three days. That's that's the story that's coming. Jesus, The, the thing that pro- finished off the Jesus rebellion was the fact that they occupied the temple and brought, this is what brought the kickback. But, but, but everybody as he's going in, they're thinking, oh, that's, that's Judas the hammer. It's no surprise that in the scripture then it says, and there were many Greeks watching. Going, well, we've seen this story before. I wonder what comes next. Okay. That's context. Okay, so Jewish rebellion happens. Now, suddenly, for the first time since the 8th century, since King David, we now have a kingdom of our own. Nobody's ruling us. And who's in charge? The Maccabee family and, and, and the other ruling families, the Hasmoneans. We now have our own Jewish royalty. And we have a king. Isn't that, isn't that wonderful? Now, they're going to do two interesting things. Number one, the Hasmodians, um, now that we have our own kingdom and we've cleansed the temple and we're rebuilding the temple, they call the temple of Zerubbabel, it's, it's really, it's, it's kind of this smaller version of King Solomon's temple, but it's what we got the first thing we're going to do in cleansing the temple we also want to cleanse the land so we're going to take people from kind of native lands down here near Jerusalem and Bethlehem and all that and we're going to shoot them we talked about this when we were talking about the Bethlehem story uh, before Christmas yeah, yeah. Um, because the Hasmonians are such an unusual thing. Yeah. could you It is kind of like the Windsors. They were the ruling family. And it was going to go father to son. Kind of that. They were, they were part of that Maccabees the ruling class. These are the ones that were coming out of Babylon. And they're, they're tracing their lineage back to King David. So we have a right to rule. We have a right to rule. By the way, do you know we have a similar thing in the Book of Mormon? What group did we have in the Book of Mormon... That believed that they always had a right to rule. The king men. Where did the king men think that they could be kings? <laughs> that they had a right to rule. Who did they trace their lineage back through? Uh, laymen. No? Uh, when Ammon, one of those, goes down to rescue Limhi, and they say, who are you? And he says, you're going to be glad I'm here. Um, and he says, I am a descendant of who? Mulek. Zarahemla. Cool. And uh, as a descendant of Zarahemla, I am, that means that I'm related to Mulek. Mulek. And if I'm Mulek, then I'm related to? King Zedekiah. King Zedekiah, who was a descendant of? King David. We're the ruling class. And it is is ours forever. And we see that, for instance, by the way, with Emma and when Joseph Smith was killed, that she believed that her sons patriarchally should be the next prophet. Should be father to son. Well, you're getting that with Asmodeans. They're going, we're, we're descendants, we are the kingly class, we deserve this, we're great, we're wonderful, and we should be kings, and so we're going to do a couple of things. Number one, we're going to cleanse Judea. We're going to send people from the south, they're going to go up to the north area, the North Galilee area, and that's going to include the ancestors of who? Mary and Joseph. They're going to go up, Mary and Joseph, okay? Um, that's going to be a problem when the Romans show up. I'll tell you about that in a second. But that's how, that's how they end up in the north. So when Joseph and Mary have to be able to, at Passover time, and they've got to go down and worship, where do they have to go to their ancestral home? Are they going to Nazareth? No, they're having to go down to Bethlehem. That's where their ancestral home is. It's in the south. Because it's probably their parents or grandparents had to go in the north. Yeah, Steph. Just, I think I just lost a minute there. Um, so the Maccabees were the, the people that were already living in Israel. Uh-huh. So, Who rose up and conquered the Greeks. Okay, so then these Hasmoneans. Are, are, are kind of the the next. You got the Mag the Maccabees and then the Hasmoneans are kind of the next family. Uh huh. And are they the ones that have left Babylon and come back? Uh huh. Yeah. They're another one of these ruling families. Cindy's Cindy's parallel to like the Windsors mm-hmm. is a really good parallel because when you follow English royalty, it changes family names over okay. over the years um, depending on who married who and all that. But the Windsors are a good example of of that. Yeah. Uh. huh so the Hasmoneans were a separate group from the Maccabees? Or they, were not- they were the success- successors to the Maccabees. Okay. They were the next family. okay? But they are the same kingly class and we're now ruling. Because remember, they only rule for like 100 years. They rule from about 167 to 67. and So it's just a short period of time and there's only two families. Well, the third. Maccabees, Hasmoneans, and then is going to come the Herodians, uh, those under Herod. Okay, and Herod is going to be inheriting all the Hasmodian stuff because he married a Hasmodian. Okay, you're going, oh, these are names, this is history. Okay, hang with me. Okay, so they ruled for about a 100 years. Oh, they do one other little nasty thing these guys it isn't it funny that when when uh, it, it's always happened with communism and and socialism that a, uh, a dictator rises up and he's a man of the people mm-hmm. and we have to throw off all these things and finally we have we're going we're gonna to get rid of all of this other stuff. And the socialists are now in charge. And then what happens to the leader of the socialists? Think Venezuela. Okay. They become a dictator. And they become as controlling as the people they threw off. When the Soviets showed up you know, under Stalin and stuff like that, they finally threw off the czars, they became more controlling. Well, guess what happened with the, the Maccabees and the Hasmoneans and stuff like that? They became controlling. And one of the things that they did was... You know how the Greeks were trying to make everybody become Greek under uh, Antiochus? The, uh, in the later stages, they were going to make everybody Jewish. Everybody in their territory has to become Judah has to become Jewish. We're going to force it. we're going to force it on you. and that includes a tribe on, on the lower part below Bethlehem called the, uh, the Idumians. Idem, Why is that important? Because when the Idumean king becomes a Jew, his family has to become Jews. And one of their, one of his kids, his oldest son was Herod. Herod was not Jewish. He was Idumean. By force. They forced him to become Jewish. The Hasmonians, The Jewish kings forced everybody to become Jewish. Wow, and that includes Herod. Now Herod will kind of claim some stake to uh, to leadership because he'll do what? He will marry a Hasmodian. <laughs> I will get a wife from the ruling class, even though I'm not Jewish myself. Okay, we'll talk about Herod in a sec. Okay, am I confusing you so far? Or is this is heavy. It's very awesome. Okay, you're hanging in there so far. You guys are awesome. Okay. Pompey and Roman rule. Um, right about this time, uh, about 60, 68, 67 BC, um, we have this new, this new powerhouse rising, and it is the Romans. Led by Pompey, uh, they're going to they're push out, and they're going to conquer, and they're going to beat the Greeks. In, in country after country until they actually control this area. It's now becoming Roman. But they're not in Jerusalem yet. They're just in Syria. Um, actually, Pompey will be killed by Julius Caesar. Um, but what's happening in the, these little, kind of these, this dictatorship that's being created by these Jewish kings down in there, uh, they start a civil war. They start battling with each other. There are two brothers, mom dies, and these two brothers are fighting. So we get this civil war going on for control of Jerusalem. It's really kind of an interesting story how they're just battling. I won't go into it, but what happens in the middle of all of that is... Um, Pompey and the Romans conquer Syria and thus Israel. In the middle of the Civil War, Herod who's now rising up uh, with Roman help puts down the last remnants of Jewish leaders and removes the Hasmonians from the temple. Uh, that's going to happen because during the Civil War, these fighting brothers are going to invite the Romans to come settle their dispute. And they're going to handle it the way that they always handle it. They take over okay they, they put Herod on the throne he's proclaimed King of the Jews by the Roman Senate and to keep the peace he marries a Jewish Hasmonean princess so here is here is Herod now Herod is a convert to Judaism a forced convert to Judaism And his Herodian Empire is a source of great anger among most devout Jews. But he's a great builder. So he builds, he rebuilds the temple, Temple of Herod. uh, Caesarea Maritima on the coast. uh, Masada. And another little place that's going to kind of be important. We're going to talk more about this uh, in a few weeks. Just north over the hill from Nazareth. Is a Jewish, or is a Roman city that's going to control the Upper Galilee called Sephora. And Sephora and Caesarea and uh, Tiberias on the coast, they're all Roman cities and they're going to build it, but are they going to build it? What, how are they going to build it? Greek style because the Romans bought into the whole Greek thing because they got seduced by the Greek thing so was Greek culture Greek construction and if you're gonna go to a Greek you're gonna go to a Roman city what are you gonna see Greek architecture you're going to see Greek architecture in Roman cities this is Ephesus and you can see the Corinthian columns all the way down here the library at Ephesus uh, massive library but it it's still built on Greek thought okay the uh, amphitheater the Roman amphitheater is over here on the side but it's a Roman amphitheater built Greek style Okay? So here's where this gets a little crazy then. So here comes this great Herod. What is, what is Herod ethnically? Where was he born? Idumia in the south. Okay? What how what who is Herod religiously? Jews. Jewish? How is Herod philosophy-wise? Greek. And who is Herod politically after they've been invaded? Roman. (laughs) He is an Idumean who converted to Judaism by force, who believes in Greek thought, and he's sucked up to the Romans. (laughs) Is he the perfect politician? (laughs) What is your favorite color? (laughs) Plaid. i want it i've got it all i got all the bases covered okay that is that's herod okay i'm covering all of those and in fact one more thing i'll tell you about Herod, wonderful little side story. I think I might have told before. Herod is so awesome that when um, Julius Caesar is stabbed by the Senate because he was trying to take over, be a dictator, the Senate stabs him, including Brutus and all that kind of stuff. Okay, uh, we get this war for control of the empire, and you're going to have uh, his son Octavius, who's declaring Caesar son of the uh, God. He's now the son of God, Octavius is, Augustus, okay? Octavius versus Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. Okay? So we have this battle between Octavius and Mark Anthony. And and guess who? Herod backs. Mark Anthony. And he fights actively against Octavius. And Herod's raising an army, and I'm fighting alongside Mark Anthony until... Mark Anthony is killed. And what happens to Cleopatra? She commits suicide. So now he's got a problem. He's the ultimate politician. (laughs) Ultimate. Um, Octavius, after the victory over Mark Anthony, goes off to the island of Rhodes. Which is a very cool place, by the way. Uh, He goes to the island of Rhodes to decide what he's going to do next. Guess who gets on a ship to go visit Octavius? Mm -hmm. Herod does. And I mean, this is like, this is like the greatest nerve ever. Uh, Herod goes into Octavius and he says, um, you know I was backing Mark Anthony, I'm not going to lie to you on that one, I was, I was backing him, uh, but the reality is Octavius, I'm a really good friend. If I'm loyal, I'm loyal all the way. And I'd like to now be loyal to you. (laughs) And Octavius goes, okay, we'll make you king of Judea. Not as much as it was, we're going to break some of the northern Sparta, but you, you still get to go back and be king. Because you fought so hard, you actually, you sponsored the Olympic Games. Caesarea is kind of a cool place. Masada is awesome, you know. Okay, you can go back and be king. And, and because you fought so hard for Julius Caesar and all okay. So Herod manages to go to the the one who destroyed his champion and walk away with a kingship. That's, that's a lot of hutzpah. <laughs> and pulls it off. Okay? So that gets us to Herod. By the way, Herod will die in uh, 5 B.C. Which tells us then that Jesus was born in (coughs) or he dies in 4 B.C. Pardon me. Which tells us that Jesus was born in 5 B.C. Because we know for sure when Herod died. And the wise men are going to come and visit Herod. Alright, now let me ask you something though. Something that I realized as I was kind of hadn't really realized previous. Christianity would not have survived without the Roman Empire. Why do you think that is? Why did Christianity need the Roman Empire? And you go, wait, wait, wait. The Roman Empire that was throwing everybody in the Colosseum and, and having them fight beasts? You mean that that Roman Empire? The one that killed Peter and Paul, Yeah, that Roman Empire. Okay? And, and crucified the Savior? That Roman Empire. Christianity would not have survived without the Roman Empire. Why? Relative, okay. peace. Relative peace. And trade. Yes, yeah, so relative peace. The, that after the Roman Empire had kicked in, and remember this is only 67 B.C. This is just a couple of decades before Jesus was born. Now suddenly there is relative peace all the way from Syria to Spain. It's all under the Roman Empire. Now it's peace. Everything's been conquered. So now there's peace. What else? Trade. Trade. So ideas went back Yes. You ever been to a Roman city? One of the first things that strikes you about a Roman city is the Roman roads. They build roads all over the place. They're in England. They're in Spain. They're, you know, they're all over the place. And the trade back and forth. And they build they build uh, ports at Corinth and Ephesus and and. Uh, um, just all over the place you can't go anywhere within the Roman Empire there was a port and there were regular ships going back and forth what happens when when uh, Jerusalem is getting ready to fall who's out there preaching and this is a class for about four or five down the road here Paul What's Paul utilizing the Roman structure and his Roman citizenship I can come and go I'll get beaten in the synagogues about five times but at least my Roman citizenship saves my bucket a few places because Roman Empire for a for a period of time created this little window where Christianity could thrive and survive in the same way that we talk about the restoration the the church had to be restored in what country America why it was going to be the only place that it was actually going to survive long enough. It would not have happened in London. And they needed the Roman Empire. So it's one of those you kind of see, here's the blessing behind all the problems with the Romans. Okay? All right, how we doing? Good. All right. Boy, I'm dropping a lot on you guys again we're, we're setting we're setting the stages okay so who are the Jews that is the question we talk about well, what did, what did the Jews think of Jesus if I were to ask you what do Americans think of Trump it would depend on what who you talk to what your political views were, what your goals were, what your aims were. It depends on that and and we talk about the Jews as this monolithic group of people at that. What did the Jews do and the Jews killed him or the Jews did this and the Jews. It's, it's, it's like the Americans. What do the Americans believe about whatever? What do the Americans believe about the New England Patriots? I don't know who you're talking to okay well the Jews are very much this way okay in 4 BC the birth of Jesus the real the question would have been who of us are the real Jews because that's the question they were asking who is the real Jew there's an interesting little parallel that sometimes we get caught up in the idea who's the real Mormons who's the most Mormon of us I know we don't use the word Mormon anymore, but (laughs) who's who's more Mormon than you? Who's more Mormon than me? I don't know. Who's the most Mormonish? Well, the Pharisees are the ones who survived. Hold on, she's going. You're starting to get it, okay? He says, "Well, the Pharisees are the ones that survived." Their question was, "What does it take to be a real Jew?" Now, and that question is to what extent can you participate in Greek culture and still be pure that's the question they're gonna we're gonna judge that against what does it mean to be Jewish means how do you handle the Greek stuff do you attend feasts and festivals and where do you do it where do you worship what scriptures would you use? Now, I throw that against who are the real Americans? Who's the real Christians? Who's, real, who's the real Christian here? If you're going to go to an ecumenical council who's the real Christians? Are Mormons Christian? Who's the real? I mean it is. It's how, how do you know who's who? it's how you define it (laughs) and they were defining themselves so in in uh, let me give you an example how that works here is here's Nazareth in the north who was it that settled Nazareth Joseph's family. So who's going to leave their ancestral home in the south to go settle Nazareth? The really pious. The most believing Jews who are going to Capture Jerusalem. These are the people actually living in West Bank places now in Israel. Because they're going, Israel is ours. And we're willing to sacrifice not living in Jerusalem. We're going to go live in the West Bank where we've got to be protected by armies. Because we believe that we have to capture Israel for the Jews. And we've got to push back against the Palestinians. The most pious Orthodox Jews lived in the north. Because they were willing to leave their ancestral homes. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, but notice what's happening up here. So here's Nazareth. Here's Sephorus. Above it, Caesarea Maritima is over here. Here's Tiberius. These are all um, these are all Jew, uh, Roman city, cities. And where's the construction material coming from? They're building. What does a Roman city look like? marble stone where's it where are the where's the construction workers to build these things nazareth nazareth, the, nazareth was a stone quarry not a forest joseph was a stonemason stone not a carpenter he would have done some carpentry work to be able to utilize where we're, how we're going to cut the stones. But first and primarily, Joseph and his, and his adopted son, Jesus, were stonemasons. But they were supplying stones for all these Roman places. So what do you think the, these Orthodox people in the north around Nazareth, what do you think they felt about the Romans? hated them they had to do it they had to do the construction but they were it was the Greek Roman push into these very pious people that is going to result and we'll talk about in a few weeks why why Jesus gets thrown out of the synagogue in Nazareth because he's too sympathetic to the Gentiles question? yeah Yeah. Uh Okay. One more. You going here? Okay. Got it. All right. By the way, I've actually figured out how to upload the PowerPoint. We got that fixed. (laughs) Thank you, Bron. Yeah. Can I ask a question? Kind of stupid, but yeah, I I keep thinking while you're talking about using believing Jews, Uh pious people, right? What kind of, are you talking about the, are you only, those pious people, believing people, are you talking about their only, their spiritual status is based on already internalized their believing or they're just very rich? Hang on to that. Hang on. She's that, you know, the pious, where's that piousness coming from? Hold on to that. Okay, we got about 15 minutes. Okay, let me, let me roll through this uh, and then it'll make sense. Okay, because when we're talking about who were the real Jews, now, that, now you start looking at the factions of the Jews living at the time when Jesus is being born. And based on how Jewish you are will determine your politics and your religion and what, how, what you're, all you're trying to accomplish. Okay, first of all, one powerful group from the New Testament. On that day some Sadducees who say there's no resurrection came to Jesus, questioned him, asking, "Teacher, Moses said, so one group is the Sadducees. And we we've, we've talked about some of this in the past, but we're kind of pulling it all together now just a reminder. So, who are the Sadducees? They are the wealthy wealthy kingly class these are the ones that would have been their ancestors would have been the first ones taken into Babylon they're the ones that come back they are they are related to the Maccabees and the Hasmonians. they're wealthy and one of the reasons if you're the wealthy kingly class and you're and you're tracing your ancestry back where do you worship and you're a because you're also a Deuteronomist and you believe all that it's all about Torah and it's all about the temple it's all about the temple and we are the king if you're going to worship Jehovah where do you need to go to the temple now by the way that's actually kind of nice because if you're coming to, if you're coming to the temple and you have got Greek drachma that's not going to work in the temple because we're going to have our own temple script. So what, what do you have got to do with your little drachma when you get into the, into the temple? Exchange. Exchange it. And we're going to charge great interest. Our interest rate will be really good. Now, that, here's the problem. Now, if you are... They, so they adhere to the written Torah just as it sits. But rejected all later teachings coming from rabbis. They just want this thing there. So so let me throw a a, a, so they are the kingly class. They are the most Greek of all the Jews. What happens if if a if I'm if I'm a Sadducee and I'm one of the ruling class and a member of the Roman the Roman leader, let's say it's Pilate, wants to come over for dinner. If you're a Sadducee, are you going to have dinner with Pontius Pilate in your house or even in his house? Absolutely. Your house is going to look a lot like the Romans' house in the in the old city of David the biggest most palatial places were built by the Sadducees and they were very Roman and they so I will eat with the Romans I will wrestle with the Romans in the gymnasium I'll go to the I'm gonna go to R-rated shows in the theater cuz I'm almost more Roman than I am Jewish but I do keep Torah so I'm Jewish and I run the temple that's the Sadducees and when you're watching the Savior interact with the Sadducees you're going to see him attacking certain things other than what he'll attack with the Pharisees because they're the one they're the money changers when when the Savior's going to come into the temple and cleanse it he's cleansing out the the Sadducees and those working for the Sadducees okay they're also the ones most threatened by him okay alright so there's that group what's the next group and it came to pass, Jesus, as he went into the house of one of the chief Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath day, that they watched him. Who are the, who are the Pharisees? Who would they be? Think, think sociologically. Who would end up being a Pharisee? They would have rabbis instead of the Sanhedrin. Okay, and where are those rabbis going to be located? Are they in the cities? In the humble villages. They were the pious, they were the righteous ones that believe that the Sadducees have gone too far, they're sucking up to the Romans, and so the Pharisees are going to be where? Out in the country. In the north of Galilee. They're all over the place. Okay, and each is ruled kind of by a rabbi, and they and instead of going to the temple all the time, where are they going? The synagogue. Synagogues. It's 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 it, it's the difference between the Catholic Church and maybe Baptist. Everything is centrally located for the Sadducees, for the Pharisees. Everybody's got their own Pharisee or their own rabbi that they like, and they you know you got to come to you ought to come to our church. we got the prosperity gospel. Oh, that's good. No, we're more traditional. We, we're more Calvinistic. Oh, okay. Then I like that one over there. You know, this is a young church. Y'all come to our church. You found your church home yet? No. We ought to come to this one over here. <laughs> and they would, they would do that. Do you like your rabbi? No, mine's kind of harsh. You know, this is like a softer rabbi. Oh, okay, we'll go over there. Okay? That's Pharisee and not very organized. But... How do you know then? How do you know you're going to be a good Jew? If you're a Pharisee. Well, first of all, I'm not a Sadducee. How else do I know? Do you watch TV on Sunday? We've added an extra law in ours that says you don't watch TV on Sunday. We're not going to do that. We're not, you know. We're going to add all of these extra rules and laws around Torah by, that our rabbis have taught us, so that we will be more righteous. How do you know that you're doing this right? That you've done the right amount of offerings? That okay? Now, what happens if Pilate wants to come over and visit your house for dinner, and you're a Pharisee? Are you out of your friggin' mind? You are not going to sit down with a Gentile at their house or your house. Because we're going to make our house like the temple. The Sadducees don't wash and anoint before they eat dinner. We do. Because we think the temple's corrupt. Our house is going to be a temple. And that includes not letting the Gentiles come into your house. That means washing yourself strictly before the before you eat and we're going to be super kosher on what we eat and where we eat it it's all about eating and festivals that's the Pharisees and when Jesus is Jesus is a rebel to them because when Jesus is going to come in and talk to the Pharisees he's not attacking the law of Moses but what does he attack the extra laws how dare you heal a man you know on the Sabbath come your how come your disciples are crushing up grain and eating them while they're walking that's not in the old that's not in Torah but that's in the Mishnah that's in the additional laws that they were putting on there and Jesus is gonna attack that okay make sense okay so that they're the ones that are going to be upset when he goes to when Jesus sits down to eat with publicans and sinners you eat with publicans and sinners and you let the sinners come into your house. While you're eating and you're not even... And they're touching you and you, didn't even, you weren't even cleansed. It's the Pharisees going bonkers on that. The Sadducees would go, okay. We eat with the Romans all the time. But the Pharisees are, oh my gosh, you can't do that. Okay? Okay? So that's that group. Okay? So, so if you want to put Sadducees on the left, put the Pharisees on the right... Now, there's another group we're going to put to the right of the right of the right of the right uh, of, of that, and it's going to be... Okay, so these are the righteous one. They gathered, they believe the Sadducees had corrupted themselves. Okay, another powerful group. And we have a couple of lines in the New Testament from their writings. When, when the Savior says in the, in the Sermon on the Mount you have heard it that it hath been said thou shalt love thine enemy and hate love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy where's that in the old testament it's not guess where it is the dead sea scrolls they had the writings of the essenes among them. And Jesus actually, and we'll talk about this in a couple of weeks here, Jesus is going to quote a couple of times that we know of in the New Testament from the Dead Sea Scrolls. This is one of them. The other one is when he gives his speech in Nazareth that gets him tossed out of the Nazareth synagogue and they try and kill him on the spot, throw him off onto the rock quarry. He's quoting the Dead Sea Scrolls again. They had the writings of the Essenes among them. Who were these people? Well, they lived at Qumran, they had separated themselves into communities. They were the new Levites. The, the Sadducees are corrupt. They're hanging out with the Romans. The Pharisees are too conservative. Or they're too liberal. We're going to create our own communities out in the middle of nowhere. And it's all and we're always living in the temple. We're the new temple. So we're always doing washing and cleansing and anointings. Uh, so they maintained a retreat area and a library at Qumran. Where they would copy Isaiah scrolls, everybody, and then so people would come in for about six months, we think, and hang out in Qumran and help write scrolls, and then they would take those scrolls back to Essene communities that were out in the desert. So there were a number of Essene communities around Qumran uh, that were getting these scrolls, and they would take a handwritten scroll of whatever it is, and one of them, like I just quoted here love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy that's, from a, that's called the community scroll um, that is part of the Dead Sea Scrolls and they would copy that community scroll, it's like the Essene constitution and they would have that in their midst how do we do things? that's what we do ok so by the way they also believe that one day the bad people would come and the sons of light would, would show up the people of light, the sons of light would destroy the invaders and right after the sacking uh, in 67, 68 A.D., when the Romans are burning Jerusalem and it's on fire, and Titus is bringing the legions out of Jerusalem and down into Qumran by the Dead Sea and everything, there they are. These guys at Qumran are going, we're washed, anointed, bring the angels. The angels are going to, the sons of light are going to show up from the, beyond the veil and wipe out these Roman invaders. But just in case that doesn't happen, take the scrolls, put them in little pots and put them in the caves across the little valley there. From Qumran's up here, there's a little valley. And then over there is where there's all the caves. We'll just hide them in pots, just in case. And sure enough, the Romans sliced through and took them. And some of them, we think, then went up to Masada and were part of the, those that had the suicide at the top of Masada. Okay, that's the Essenes, to the right of the right of the right. But their writings were known among the Jews, and that's why it's important that we know that they were aware of that. Okay? Yeah? Why did the Sadducees not believe in resurrection? Because it wasn't in Torah. Resurrection was one of those... She want to know, why didn't the Sadducees believe in resurrection? Job is in, and he said, yeah, but that kind is coming later. We're going to believe in the Pentateuch, and Job is outside of that by the way, Job's a poem and it's the impatient poem and we'll talk about impatient Job okay, but no, that was outside we're just believing in these five books we're sticking with that, and if it's not Genesis, Exodus Leviticus, Numbers it's not there, we're not even reading Kings, we just like those books and then we can actually cheat the poor but we can, as long as we're living the law of Moses, we're doing good okay, last group, and we got five minutes Last group. This is a group that rose up uh, a couple of decades in. Uh, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Not one of them claimed that anything belonged to him was his own, but all things were in common property to them. They ate as a group, they, they worshiped as a group, uh, and, and they pulled together. Uh, they were co- they were followers of the Way. The name of their group was the Way. Okay. They believed that a new kingdom had come. Their king, a new David, had arrived. And interestingly enough, unlike old David, in their case, he had been crucified and resurrected. A new kingdom was here. Heaven was not nearly as important as what we do here now. Heaven will take care of itself. Our important job is to take care of one another as members of the way. Because he taught, when our king was here, he talked about, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Heaven would take care of itself. It was about living in the new kingdom now. When, when uh, a converted uh, Roman citizen by the name of Saul is now going to go out and use the Roman roads and pathways to go talk to people and convert them to the way, they're being talked about that a kingdom has arrived. It is here. Don't wait for heaven. Join now. Take, give up all your other stuff. Come and work together and love one another and take care of one another. That was, that's what they were believing. The kingdom has arrived. Yeah. That's interesting you mentioned that because when we were in Kirtland um, last year in July, um, one of the people in our group asked the tour guide, what's the difference between your church and ours? And he said something very similar to this. You said, "You focus a lot on the hereafter and what's coming in the future. We focus on the now and how we treat people around." Yeah, yeah. Isn't that interesting? That they would they would be believing on we're going to take care of things now. And this was very much the belief then. We have to take care of one another right away and not just wait. That, in other words, joy and happiness and love and everything could ha- and heaven is happening right around us, which is which is a, a fantastic way I think of looking at this. Uh, the prompt now. The thing, though, that was interesting about the way is that they they didn't have to give up their Jewishness, but they believed, and it took them a while. Those in Jerusalem were the holdouts; they were harder, but those, especially in Corinth and Ephesus and everything, believed, and certainly Paul was pushing hard on the idea that all the blessings of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're now being extended not just to the Jews, but we're also being extended to the Gentiles. Everybody, it wasn't like all that stuff is now done, we'll turn it off, and it doesn't matter anymore. Paul was saying the members of the way believed, didn't matter whether you were Gentile or whether you were Jewish, you all had access to the blessings of Abraham. And it was never more evident than the fact that members of the way would eat dinner in a communal table every night together. Jew and Gentile. If you're raised, if you're raised Pharisee, that's a hard one. That's why at one point Paul is really angry at Peter because Peter in one town is going to come in and eat with the Gentiles and then he goes to another town and he's getting some pushback from the Jews and he kind of steps back a little bit and he won't eat with the Gentiles at the common table. And, and, and Paul in Galatia blows up in front of the crowd, in front of Peter. What are you doing to my converts? And you don't understand how this works. And then Peter will kind of repent of that and do better later. But that's, that's a story for another time. Okay. Uh, I left none here? Oh, members of this group could be as, found as far away as Gaul in Spain. Whew. All right. Did we back the dump truck up and like just dump it? <laughs> you gone all the way from Babylonian captivity uh, to, to the way. Okay, questions on this before we... Yeah, yeah. How did this group get started? Well, you know that, that Nazarene guy, when he would come in and he, he, would, he would preach, after he would leave they started to organize themselves uh, in all these little groups. Uh, so that it was kind of at this point in time, it? yeah and and the thing that that makes it important for for the, the, and so this is the earliest connections of the church. the church is starting here, but they are forming together here, and then when in sixty seven sixty eight sixty nine a d when the Romans wipe out everything in there, the church has now moved to uh, out to uh, Ephesus and, and uh, all out there. And all of those guys have got to either leave or they're going to be conquered. Okay, And we're going to have evidence of these communities really struggling and everything uh, for about the next couple of hundred years. And we'll take a look at some of the writings of um, some of those early leaders like Clement. Yeah? Where did the Samaritans begin? I, 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 was, I was going to do one on the, on the Samaritans and I ran out of time. Uh, we'll, let's, if you're interested in the Samaritans, which have a really fascinating history with their own temple on Mount Gerizim and their own temple, and it's going to come out with the lady of the woman at the well, we'll actually be getting into what the Samaritans believe, because they are an important part of this. And part of, the, part of the anger against the Samaritans is that they weren't dragged off to Babylon. They're, they're, the, they're the trained Mormons that didn't have to go through the sacrifices that we did in the 1847. Well, those kind of things. Okay, any last, any last questions? Again, I apologize for how much. Now, uh, next week what I want to do is, kind uh, of the underlying part of all of this is what scriptures were they reading? What did they understand? And as Christians, when we look back at all of this, it's like, what does this mean to us? So I wanna talk a little bit about some geography next week, but I really wanna dive into uh, the author of Matthew, and the author of Luke, and the author of John. Who were they, and what was the first book, and how was it performed? Um, and, And how did we come to get those texts? And what do the earliest texts say, and what do the later texts say? And I'm finally going to tell you where the uh, the forgery is in the New Testament. It's actually because we know we know when it was added, and we know where it was added, and we know why it was added. And there is a forgery in there from the 14th century. Okay. (laughs) Any last questions? Okay. How do we get on your email list? I'll I'll help you with that. Yeah. It's it's KevinHinkley.com. And then you're just going to go to the Institute list. But also, Braun has now been able to hook up uh, connection to the podcast. So that means that what I'm going to be able to do... You didn't know, did you? No. No. Yes. I get a little text from him from time to time. Hey, I fixed this. Okay. Uh, I had some people on the cruise go out there, and they were actually, when they were looking at the audio recordings, it actually took them to the iTunes podcast thing, so they were able to actually start. Start signing up on that. But I will send the audio of this class today. Um, and we'll, because because the fact that it isn't as structured as it would be if we're like walking through the New Testament makes it a little bit hard to know what's coming next. So I apologize for that. Okay, yeah, last one. How can we download the Oh, 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 And then the other thing I'm going to do is that I will start I'm not going to try and go back too far, but I, I should be able to start Braun says, I should be able to start uploading Braun runs my, my website. Um, I, we should be able to start uploading the PowerPoints uh, as of today. so when I get back to the office today, I'll upload the audio, and I'll also upload the PowerPoint on this so we'll one. Go to your website? Yeah, just go to the website and should be there. Yeah. Uh, you might have already addressed this, but all my life I was always wondering if being Jewish is a bloodline thing or if it's a religion. Yes, <laughs> she says it's being Jewish a bloodline, or is it a religion? And it ends up being kind of yes. Okay. So, all right. Uh, and With that, I, I leave that with you. In in Jesus' name, Amen. 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 And I, we can talk after. Dear Father in heaven.